Welcome, everyone, to Doc's Point of View Podcast. My name is Trey, your host. And today we're going to start off with the first episode of Hey Doc, Do You Have a Second? The reason for this episode is to give the audience a more in-depth background of who I am and what I've done, or like a chronological you know, order of my assignments. The reason I want to do that is so that when we get into future episodes, you understand my perspective, my point of view, pretty much where I'm coming from when I discuss certain topics. I just want you to know who I am without telling you too many details. So let's get into it. Hey, real quick, if you can and you're willing to support us uh, in whatever way you can, we always really appreciate it. With the best ways to do that, go to patreon.com slash podcast. Pick a tier that's right for you and support us if you can. We would really appreciate you. Lots of really cool benefits there. Go check them out. Also, don't give up the ship apparel. It's dgutsapparel.com. Get yourself some Naval Pride and Heritage gear you'll actually wear in public. We've got t-shirts, hoodies, all kinds of cool shower shoes, little like uh, drawstring bags, all kinds of cool stuff, a bunch of really cool custom stickers, and then the challenge coins and, and don't give up the ship podcast apparel is there as well. So please, if you can and you're willing to support us, Go to those two places uh, and find whatever way works best for you. It's dgutsapparel.com and patreon.com slash dgutspodcast. Thank you. We need to go all the way back to before I joined. I was in college. I had left high school, went to a community college on a scholarship to play the bass guitar and a jazz band. I really loved it. It was a great time, but I didn't really feel like I was going anywhere in life, even though I had everything set up to where I could have finished school with no financial debt or anything like that. But personally, I just didn't feel like I was doing anything meaningful. I had part-time jobs, and I had many of them because I didn't really know how to, I didn't really have a great work ethic, you know, just a, a lot of different things that weren't going going well. So I, out of a whim, or on a whim, I went online and searched up military careers, saw that the Navy, you know, I looked at the Navy's website, looked at the Coast Guard's website, and decided I'd put my name out there so a recruiter could get in touch with me. Spoiler alert. You know, I'm in the Navy, so the Coast Guard obviously didn't work out. They really didn't even contact me until like six months later. They're not really hurting that, or at that time, they weren't, you know, hurting for anybody. They're a pretty small, you know, branch of the military. But the Navy got me, got, uh, the Navy contacted me, you know, within a week. I went down to the recruiter's office, had probably a fairly similar. I probably had a very similar time as anyone else went to a recruiter's office, you know, did the paperwork, signed up, and set, set on a, or got set on a date to go to MEPS. The problem was, is when I showed up to the recruiter's office, my recruiters weren't there to go to MEPS. They ghosted me, wouldn't answer my phone calls, and weren't even in the office. I was pretty confused, didn't really understand how that was possible, and it took like two or three weeks for me to just get it get in uh in contact with them so that I could continue on this journey. 
So fast forward two, three weeks from that point, you know, I walked into the office and there they were. And I told them right there, I said, hey, I'm ready to sign up. Please give me to MEPS ASAP. So they did that. And I went to MEPS, did the screening. Nothing, nothing unusual. I do remember the time when I talked to the detailer when he offered me my job. I had two options, crypto, CT, if you want to call it that, and Corman. And the guy sold me on Corman, mainly by telling me, hey, you're going to be driving ambulances and doing all these high-speed things that weren't true at all. Never drove an ambulance, at least not a real one. I've drove Humvee. I've drove Humvees, you know, as an ambulance. But I never got to do anything cool like that, like the guy tried to sell me on. But I was young and dumb, so I said, hey, that sounds sweet to me. Uh, Sign me up. So there I was. I swore in as a corpsman in 2014. I then waited six months and went to boot camp and I had a pretty bland experience there as well. We didn't get it PT'd as much as I thought we would. I didn't even get the run but like two or three times and they expected us to pass the PRT. I thought that was interesting. An interesting way of going about getting people in shape. But it was a, I mean it was a culture shock. I'm from a small town in the southeast and there's not much culture to be had or to be immersed in where I'm from. So going to boot camp with all different types of people was very different, but I, you know, I soaked it up and I enjoyed my time there. Graduated boot camp and then went on down to San Antonio, Texas and went through core school. And at that time, they, the curriculum was different than what people who are going through now or within the last two or three years, what they're going through is not the same what I what I went through. And I would love to get more insight on what the curriculum is so I can compare it to what, you know, the curriculum that the people went through in 2014, 2015. I just know that when I went through, I was able to, I had the eligibility to challenge the EMT basic exam just based off the curriculum that we went through. So that was pretty cool. But I, you know, I did the, what, four-month-long A school and then got assigned to my first duty station. I went to a Blue Side hospital on the East Coast. And it was like a mid-size to upper-size hospital. And I'll leave it at that. But as soon as I checked in, I got assigned to a subordinate command of the hospital, so I actually ended up serving my two years in a Naval Branch Health Clinic. Funny thing that I do remember to this day is when I I did not have a sponsor going to my first command. And it's just it was just a matter of no one got into contact with me, maybe my email wasn't up to date, and I just plainly didn't know that having a sponsor was very important. So I showed up to the gate of this base at like 2100 at night, no idea where I was going, and the gate guards looked at me like I was an idiot, you know, showing up that late, and my dress blue saying, hey, I'm ready to check into, you know, Naval Hospital, whatever, and they're like, uh, this guy's not going to go far. <laughs> That's what I thought they were thinking, but they showed me where I was. Show me how to get there, and then who was even madder than the get guard? The OD of that duty that night, 
who, you know, ended up giving me a barracks room. And then the next day I checked in again in my dress blues and got assigned a sponsor. Now I bring that up because it's very important to have a sponsor because it really does change your outlook at that of that command and that first impression is very important. Moving on, I you know, I did I worked in the lab of a branch health clinic as a quad zero corpsman for my first year or so at that duty station. Now that means I did phlebotomy for the whole time there. I did nothing but phlebotomy after phlebotomy after phlebotomy. But the lab techs in the back, they, you know, they, they helped show us some of the stuff that they would do. But I really wasn't interested in being a lab tech at that time or really even now. So I, you know, I doing doing phlebotomy every day for eight to eight plus months just gets monotonous and you get bored out of your mind. So after that period of time, I asked my LPO, hey, can I can I get out of here and move somewhere else? And he had someone else trying to move it out of, out of a different department of that clinic. And they switched us, and I went to medical records. And that was a terrible idea because medical records is even more boring than phlebotomy. And it, I mean, it, as an E3 who hasn't done many or hasn't done much patient care, you know, that... It doesn't make sense to put that person in an administrative department doing paperwork. It's, a, it's very important for that new person to get their hands on patient care type environments. But nonetheless, I went to medical records, spent three months there because I raised my hand one day when they asked for someone to move to primary care. So then I moved to primary care, and that's where I actually got to start doing sick call. That's where I fell in love with what... We do as a corpsman. Sick call was great. I had great IDCs, even though they were very harsh critics. They showed us the way. They took us under under our wing, under their wing, and we were some of the best corn I've seen when it comes to sick call, physicals, M's. You know the whole nine yard of what a clinic is supposed to do. It also helps that we had a great, you know, chain of command from the work center supervisors all the way up to the chiefs. They we all were a very tight tightly knit cohesive group. And I think that's what stems from or that's the root of every good group of uh or working group of people. So I did probably my last year at the first duty station as we all know is usually about 2 years in primary care doing again sick call. And then I also got moved into a subsection of that clinic doing nothing but minor procedures. And I think that's some of the stuff that Corman really liked to... Excuse me. That's where Corman actually liked to, you know, brag about their skills with the the hands-on type procedures that we are known to be able to do. So we did, you know, toenail removals, IVs, the basic type of stuff, Ab- abscess, INDs, it, you know, it was a great time, and I learned a lot, and the IDCs let us have a full scope of practice when it came to patient care. And they really, the, the way that they taught us in that environment was to teach us to do their job for them. And that kind of sounds lame or lazy on their part, but it's what makes great corpsmen or makes a great foundation for corpsmen to build, on, build upon.
before I left, I was still an E3. I didn't make rank in my first command, but I ended up being the person who was training all the new corpsmen. I had a lot of fulfillment and just had a great time at that command. I, I, thinking back, you know, during the time my time there, I probably had a different opinion, but looking back, I don't really have any gripes or complaints. It, it really was a great place to learn the, the foundational skills. After that, I went to, or I picked orders, and got selected for another blue side command. For anybody that doesn't know, corpsmen are very shore-centric. You can at, you can even ask for a lot of sea duty, and you may not get it anyway. And it really depends on your year group and what are the manning levels for shore versus sea duty. Now, I, I had my motives on what orders I selected, and then ended up getting selected for and I can get into that too in, a, in a later date, but I, I got assigned to a blue side hospital of about the same size of my first hospital. But at this new place, I showed up as an E3 and checked into pediatrics. That was a culture shock of in in of its own because I was just do, I just came from a place where I was very seasoned in that environment and I was doing patient care on you know military population 18 to 40 years old give or take so going to a pediatric clinic I had no idea what I was doing I knew I knew how to do the patient care but there's a different way you have to act around civilian personnel or dependents and especially dependents or military members kids you have to be on your P's and Q's because it's very important to take care of those kids because that will, if you don't take care of the kids, that will inevitably affect the service member who is about to deploy or who isn't home all the time or even when they are at home. I spent two and a half years at pediatrics in that hospital and I picked up E4 on the first exam after checking in. And I knew I had a good chance because of the evals I was rolling into that command with and my transfer evaluations. So I picked up before and I was, you know, sitting at three and a half years in. So that's about right for picking up E4. If not a little bit, you need a, a lot of people are picking up E4 even before that nowadays, give or take. And then after I picked up E4, you know, the the leadership in that clinic started giving me a little bit more I guess, supervisory responsibilities. And when I say that, I'm not talking about ALPO or LPO. I'm talking about work center supervisor type stuff where patient care in the clinic is still your main prior priority, except you're the subject matter expert of that clinic. And that's the perfect spot for that E4 who has worked the floor of a clinic or a ward. Once they make E4, you know, start letting them supervise the people, the new people that are coming into that clinic. And that's what I got to do. And I worked that for a few months. And then the ALPO position opened up because the LPO and LPO left at the same time. And they moved me up into that role. Now that was a different shift because all the people that worked in that clinic knew me as an E3 who just picked up before. And they obviously know that I don't know what I'm doing as an LPO. So that dynamic is very difficult to work with at times, depending on the people that work with you. 
or for you. Now, I it was a steep learning curve, but I, I inevitably ended up, you know, figuring it out. Because you either figure it out and keep moving up, or you stagnate and maintain incompetency. I spent the next few months as the LPO, and a new E6 or a new HM1 came in to be the LPO. Surprisingly, a, he was a behavioral health tech, and and you know I was a quad zero, but we 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 meshed well, and he took me under his wing and taught me everything that he could teach me. And he was a seasoned HM1, so I I took everything he said as golden, which is probably naive, but uh, I liked I liked the way he led the clinic, so I try to emulate that as well. And then I picked up E5 at 14 after 14 months of being an E4. And that's where I think things could have been different. I wish I wish I could have, you know, stayed E4 because when they told me, hey, you're being mapped to E5, congratulations. My first thought was, well, I barely even have worn in this E4 tab. Like, I don't even know what I'm doing right now as an E4, and y'all are sitting here saying, hey, you need to be an E5, or you deserve to be an E5. And that's probably the shifting point where I started feeling like, or I started having that imposter syndrome in my career, and I still have that imposter syndrome now. It's kind of a crazy feeling, always thinking that you don't know what you're doing, but people have been telling you, hey, this, this makes sense. And I think the reason I got mapped was majority. The a main reason was my chain of command, you know, fought for me to get that, you know, that quota. And I was filling a role that an E5 typically fills. So, on paper, that makes sense. Promote this guy to E5, which I was very happy about. You know, new role, new money, or more money, and it gave me more incentive to stay in. Because my full intent was me and my wife to move to the second duty station, get my degree done, and then get out of the Navy. But after I made a few ranks and was paying, was getting paid more money, and I was doing well, you know, personally and professionally, I was like, hey, it kind of, you know, even with my degree that I got while I was there, it kind of makes more sense to stay in because I actually like what I'm doing now. The patient care was fun to learn, but moving into a management, low-level management, we'll say that, into middle management and working on running a clinic as a whole, you know, I, I learned that, hey, this is actually fun stuff to do. I enjoy this. So I ended up re-enlisting at that time once I got orders to my third duty station. But after about two and a half years, there was some shifting and chain of command at the, on the O level, and some of the st- the uh, the officer staff didn't really like how myself and my LPO operated in that clinic, and there was some toxicity between them and us and the junior corpsman who worked the floor, which is sad to see, but. Me and my LPO didn't really get along with them, and I uh, I had to end up leaving that department, and it was my choice. I'll say that, at least. It was my choice to leave, but I'd also like to add that 
I made my my H and one left prior to this happening, and I moved up to his role as the LPO. And I would say it's only because of my direct chain of command, my chief, my first class, and my director at chief, them taking care of me, helped me get out of there, you know, and everybody was getting along just fine before anything bad happened. So I left and went to a different department. I went to a ENT department with only like two, two or three sailors. And that was kind of weird because I just came from the LPO position of 12 to 15 sailors. So that was kind of a downgrade in my eyes. Because I didn't really feel like I was providing those three sailors with much. Because I didn't really know their clinic that well. So And they didn't really need much from me as an LPO. So I only worked there for you know three or four months and then I asked to move again. And went to OBGYN as the LPO of that clinic. And I'm still an E5 at this time. And my time there was... I had I enjoyed my time in OBGYN because that, there was a lot of junior sailors, you know, 12 to 15 of them, who I could pass down what I knew. And they were phenomenal corpsmen with patient care. So everything, was, you know, went smoothly in that department. And there's some great officers in the department that who were probably enlisted, and I, I have no gripes or complaints at that at that clinic. Now, moving forward again, I got assigned to my first sea duty command, leaving there. So we're talking about E5 at six years, leaving the my second duty station, going to field med uh, or FMTB in lieu of my permanent duty station, which was a, and currently still is, a greenside billet. And my evaluations leaving that command were pretty high, so I knew I had a good chance of picking up HM1 as soon as I got to my permanent duty station. And the first test that I took there, I also picked up HM1, and I was assigned to... A, I was assigned to a platoon within this command or within this battalion and as soon as I got there I went on two or three different TADs after TADs and we're not talking about we're not talking about full deployments or anything like that so it wasn't bad at all but it, it was it was actually a great experience getting tasked out to not field not field exercises but you know real life missions I would I'll say that lightly and most of it, most of it was COVID re- related, so my command sent a bunch of people, a bunch of personnel, to many different COVID response TADs, and I got to go through all of these and do different types of them, which was a is a great learning or a great educational time. After I returned from multiple TADs in this platoon, I did a few field operations just exercises to certify the, the 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 platoon and once all that stuff settled down and we kind of got in a groove I started you know applying for some company level collaterals which I ended up getting I I became the department career counselor for the company and I ended up becoming the 
the FMF coordinator for the company as well. And with those two jobs alone, I've, you know, I started shifting my, what I wanted to do into program management versus LPO because just the dynamic of where I work right now, there's a lot of, there's a lot more upper ranks than there are lower ranks. So there's not many leadership opportunities. So you have to kind of grab leadership where you can get it. So I went to company level collaterals and with that I had plenty of leadership roles. After doing some time in the company, I worked my way up to the battalion and I took over the command career counselor position at that command. They then sent me to career counseling school. It's well, I'm not going to get into that, but they sent me to career counseling school, and then now that puts me at where I'm at now, currently at you know at this time. So that's that's who I am. I'm I'm feeling a command career counselor. I'm filling in as a command career counselor, and I'm I'm the battalion FMF coordinator for the command. And I think I think my time at this sea duty, I did it right. You know, I spent some time in the platoon and company, and then now. At my last 12 months here on board, I'm spending time in a program management slash administrative role at the battalion, which has been great. I have no complaints. I've I've enjoyed my time here. There's been some great upper leadership who has taken a a bunch of people, not just myself, but a bunch of us under their wing and taught us everything they knew. And I actually have some great chiefs who try to teach us every day if, you know, if our ears are open. So I don't want to linger too much more on my time uh, or my history of assignments, and I want to leave that open uh, for dialogue in future episodes. So what I do want to talk about is what does that career progression look like and what do I think or my personal opinion on what a good or a very beneficial career progression would look like for someone joining, you know, within the last two years or even now or maybe in a year from now. So I think uh, I think I think I made rank fairly fast, and I think which I you know I figured it out through a great chain of command teaching me what I needed to know and having to go through some leadership experiences with some junior sailors who goofed up or whatever and having to see that side of the Navy. So I, I figured it out, but I wish I didn't feel confident when I was filling roles as a junior E5 or a junior E6. And I wish that maybe it probably would have played out much better if, you know, I didn't make rent, make E5 within, you know, 14 months of making e, e, E4. And maybe if I made E6 at the 9-10 year mark, like where I'm at now, because right now I feel very comfortable where I'm at. And I felt very comfortable as an E5 at that 6-7 and seven year mark. So if everything would have shifted to the right a little bit, maybe things would have been smoother. But in the end, everything did smooth out. So I'm not sure if there's much of an argument there. 
if I wasn't, if I didn't figure it out, it could have been very bad. Say I wasn't, say I wasn't competent at all, even though they put me in a, or promoted me to a, a couple ranks. I could have really, you know, ruined someone's career. I could have put a bad taste in someone's mouth by not being a good leader. There's all kinds of negative things that could happen when you put someone in a position when they're not ready. And I've always been scared of being put in a position like that. I'm terrified as a command career counselor. I don't, I feel like if I had more experience, a few more years under my belt, or more experience as a department career counselor, that I would feel more comfortable where I'm at now. But there's so many time frames and timelines that have to be met in the career counseling world that you could ruin someone's career. And then the hammer's going to be coming down on you. Will, would, more experience help that? I think so. But you either figure it out or you don't and you pay, you know, you pay with the consequences. Now, I'm very grateful for, you know, my promotion history. And I've been, you know, I've enjoyed my time in. But I still got a long ways to go. So I just try to be very open to criticism and let people who are more seasoned than me Tuck me under the wing and teach me everything they know. Now, more importantly, what I want to talk about is what what is a good career path right now, give or take two years, two two or so years. Now I I'm a quad zero, so if I got out right now, I have nothing. I I have a degree, but that was that was done on my own time. So yeah, I could I could pick up a job. But it wouldn't pay as much as I'm being paid as an E6. So sitting at 9, 10 years in E6, I'm, I'm kind of stuck. I mean, I'm halfway there to retirement at 20. So I might as well just keep going because then at least I get a pension once I do hit 20 and decide to get out or retire. But if you join or try to go to a C school, and get a technician specialty, one and especially one that comes with the eligibility to strike for a national accreditation. You could get out whenever you want, whenever the time is right, and you're not looking at that twenty year mark as you know the end all be all. For me, if I got out at ten years, you know I'm pretty much starting over at square one with nothing, into a new career, of whatever I would go into. So I might as well. So like my mentality right now is like I need to just do twenty so I can at least get a page, uh, a pension, and then start a career so that I have a dual income. Because I really don't have anything to fall back on, minus the the degree I got on my own time over the last you know within that first you know six years of service. So what's an ideal, in my opinion, career progression or career path to take? And I, I want to preface this one as, you know, you rank will come with this, and it will come at the right time if you do everything right, I think. But I think, so the Navy is giving out so many great incentives for those first-term sailors within that zone A, up to six-year mark, up to the six-year mark. So here's what I think it should look like. Join the Navy. Strike corpsman. Or join as a corpsman. 
do your first duty station and just soak up as many things as you can. And what I mean by that is go to different shops, different departments, and see what those technicians are doing and see if any of those interest you. Ask the OJT with them. You know, get immersed in anything and everything you can. Because you can always be a quad zero. You always can maintain that career path. Focus on the ones that come with that SRB and STAR program. As of right now, you're talking about like the RAD, the LAB, the BHTs, the Biomed, obviously the IDC, the, the multiple IDC routes. Stick, uh, especially look into those because if you leave your first duty station, this is what I think you should do. If you leave your first duty station with C school orders and you go to C school and you do that, I'll observe the train. Or re-enlist, you obviously will re-enlist after that C-School. You're putting on E5 and you're getting a, uh, you know, a selective re- re-enlistment bonus. That's more than that's more than what I ever got. Uh, and more than a majority of the people who've been in over six years ever got. Because these, incent- these, new- these incentives are very new and they may not last long. They may start going away because it... With retention, you know, the that wave is a wave. It goes up and down. Now I now you ha- if to do that right, you know, to get all the, the incentives you can, you need to leave your first duty station E four with C school orders in your hand. Because then you're going to your next duty station and putting on E five with some money in your pocket, and then you can just focus on being a technician. Don't worry about all the Navy stuff and political stuff because over time that's all going to, you know, iron itself out. And as a technician, you may, you probably will have time to do those things on top of learning your job. Over, you know, over the next three years at your next command, you can, you know, learn your, your, your trade, dive into some of those, you know, five wickets as they call them, be competitive, and you may leave your second duty station as a season E5 or, you know, potentially an even an E6. And say you don't even leave there. Say you just stay there and don't worry about promotion. Say you picked up E5 going to your second man after graduating C school. Spend the next three years doing your tech job and don't worry about anything else. Go to school, get some secondary education, get that national certification if your specialty comes with it. And then... Just worry about getting good evals and leave that command with an even better transfer eval and then go into your E6 exam at your next command with high hopes. And then if you pick up E6 at your third duty station, you're talking about people don't know you. So they're just going to expect you to be at E6. Or you're going to you're going to expect the standard of E6 knowledge when you get there or when you promote it. That sounds like a pretty great career path to me or career progression because then you're looking at you know eight nine years becoming either being a seasoned d5 or maybe a freshly uh a fresh new hm1 that's the way i would have done it if i would have went back i would have picked a c school out of my first command if not i would at least out of my second command and i believe when you do your job 
and you do it well, you know, time, over time, rank will come. So it shouldn't be like the only thing you're worried about because we have a lot of people that are making rank too fast. And that can inevitably, you know, play out negatively to the sailors who work for them. And we don't want that. What we want is skilled technicians and skilled leaders. I think that wraps it up. I gave you my history and I gave you maybe an alternative path to take. Definitely in the times of this recruiting crisis and times of historical times where corpsmen are getting a lot of bonuses. A lot of programs are in that star program where E4s can make E5. I think it'd be a good idea to wrap it up here and, you know, knowing that I at least try to portray that idea. Please join me on my next uh, episode. I'm going to be interviewing a phenomenal HM2. He's a great friend of mine and he's also a great co-worker. I'm excited to share a conversation with him as we, me and him, have had many and they've always been interesting. So I want you guys to kind of hear a snapshot of some of the conversations we've had and we'll try to, you know, make it interesting. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, please email me. I would love to answer those questions on these solo series. And see you at the next one. Peace. Thank you.